Welcome back. I am here with a very special guest, Lori Williams. Lori, I'm very happy to have you on the show today. Oh, Sean, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm honored that you'd have me on your show. I'm excited to talk about all the things we've talked that we're going to talk about. <laughs> yeah, there's 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 definitely a lot to cover. So, Lori, I want to first establish how you got into remote viewing, where you trained, and and just a little bit about your biography, kind of what you were doing at the time, how you figured this figured this all out. Yeah, Sean, you know, my whole life I had experienced paranormal activity. And I didn't even realize that it was in any way paranormal or different. I thought everyone lived the way I lived and experienced reality the way I did. <clears throat> my father was a I was a university professor and my mom was a homemaker. And I'm the youngest of three girls. And while I was growing up, we just there was just a lot of phenomena that would occur in the house. You know, we had poltergeist activity all the time and things like that. And I just now, is that is that common actually? Like a lot of people ascribe poltergeist activity to what may naturally be human abilities. Yes, you know they've done a lot of studies and they found that the height of poltergeist activity, when there is a lot of poltergeist activity in a home, it's often when there are adolescents present and more frequently female adolescents as opposed to male adolescents. But I grew up from my earliest memories. I remember having vivid dreams in which three beings would come to me and they weren't your typical angelic looking beings. They were in dark robes. They almost looked like Neo in, in um, the matrix. You know, mm -hmm. they had long dark hair, they seemed male and they had long dark coats. <clears throat> and the thing is, is I, I mean, these dreams I was having when I was like two and three years old and I still remember them vividly, but these beings would come in, they would take me out of my body and we would go flying wherever it was. And we would be communicating telepathically. And of course, I had no way to communicate that with, you know, very limited vocabulary at two and three years old. But I would tell my mother that I, you know, that these, I called them angels. And I said, these three angels came and they got me out of my body. And they, at night, they take me to a classroom. And mommy, we don't have to talk with our mouths because we can talk with our minds. You know, like my poor mom, you know, she just didn't know yeah. what to do with that. So those were my earliest memories. And so that right there is unusual. You know, that's, I mean, I don't hear about many children having that. I did find out later that when I was around two, I had a near-death experience that I don't have any recollection of. But my mother told me that I literally died and had to be brought back, you know, and all that. So, <clears throat> and in the studies that have been done on that, mm -hmm. You know, they find that kids who have had, who have died and been brought back tend to have a higher level of psychic ability. So I was kind of odd man out in my family. However, my mother is Sicilian and she's always been extremely intuitive. And her mother had a lot of stories of precognition and uh, psychic dreams and things like that. So I grew up having precognitive dreams, dreams that would come true, you know, the next day or a few days later. I had one very vivid precognitive dream that was like a warning dream that came true two years later after I had the dream. And then it was like, Oh my God, this is my dream. You know, you know, when you have something like that. And I've also had visions that have saved my life, you know, that warned me about a, an impending car situation on the highway that I was able to avoid when it would happen because I'd had a vision of it beforehand, things like that. Being with my husband in a 40-foot motorhome, driving 
the mountain roads of Colorado and warning him to slow down that as we, I said, listen, as we come around this next curve, there's going to be a huge animal that's going to run in front of us. You have to slow down. And so he braked. And then right as we came around the curve, this massive elk, male elk ran out in front of us. Had he not slowed down, we would have definitely hit it. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm grateful in that I have a husband who truly believes in my abilities okay. and really listens, you know? So throughout my life, I had these experiences and when I was just turned 14, like 14 and two weeks old, I met the Jesus people in a park in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I got really excited all about Jesus and all about the Holy Spirit and religion. And I became really involved in that. And so for the next 20 years of my life, from 14 to 34, I ended up being very involved in this. And I ended up traveling all over the world. I learned to speak Spanish fluently. I lived in Latin America for the better part of 20 years. And when I came back to the States and decided to leave the whole missionary life behind, I decided I really wanted to dig deeper into these paranormal events that had happened my whole life. What were they? Were they evil? You know, were they good? Were they from God? Were they from the devil? I, you know, I had all these questions in my mind. Just to, just to interject on that, like if you, you became intensely religious, became a missionary, how did you reconcile the Christian religion with things that depending on which version or flavor of Christianity, like, like, you know, a Baptist might say it's satanic, right? Exactly. Exactly. The group that I was in, it was actually kind of a cult. It's better known as a cult nowadays, but the group that I was in, there was a lot of prophecy. So a lot of it, I found I could get around with semantics, you know, as far Mm -hmm. as, you know, like instead of having a precognitive dream, you had, you know, you had a prophetic dream it was all how you phrased it like i just had a word from the lord you know as opposed well, to well it's, it's like the opposite way in the military right like you would phrase this precognitive or remote yeah, viewing exactly. as opposed to you want to use the, or, you want yeah, to use the yeah. scientific science term. right exactly let's base it in science so this of course in in the missionary world i had to be a little more cautious how i expressed what was happening to my in my you know around me and so but I did, it did bother me. It was like, I wanted to reconcile this. So when I came out of that missionary lifestyle, my my main goal was how do I reconcile this? That was my exact thing. Where do I go to reconcile my belief system with what's been happening my whole life? Because you can really run into problems if your belief system and your experiences are not in, are not reconciled with each other. So I decided I was on a quest to find this and I became the head of a refugee resettlement program. So I was the director of this program and I was reading a book on children with near-death experiences and the research that had been done where they followed these kids for 20 years and they had control groups of kids who had never had near-death experiences, etc. And I was reading this book one night and I read this part that said children who have near-death experiences tend to be much more psychic because a normal person has one verifiable psychic experience per lifetime. And I was like, that's normal. And so I was like, what, if that's normal, what am I? And and they say that verifiable is, for example, you have a precognitive dream, you tell your spouse about it and the next day it comes true. So your spouse heard about it before it came true. That makes it more verified, Right. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, I've had so many verifiable experiences. Plus, when the poltergeist activity became really heightened in my house, 
you know, my whole family experienced it and blamed me. <laughs> they were like, what have you brought into this house? You know, and that sort of thing. So I found that I had to reconcile it. And I w- attended a conference in Colorado Springs, I believe it was, or Denver. And it was somewhere in Colorado. And it was on post-traumatic stress disorder in refugees and secondary post-traumatic stress disorder for the social workers working with people who've been under severe trauma. And so I was attending this thing and it was so fascinating. I found the speaker, the main speaker, very fascinating. And this speaker actually knows Dave Morehouse very well. I believe his name, if my memory serves me, because this was 1996, if my memory serves, his name was Dan Cole. And Dan had been the psychologist in the program for 20 years, but I had no idea who he was. And I had just started this job with the refugee program. I had just met my first colonel. I'd never met a colonel in my life, never had any association with the military in any way. And this colonel came to see me right after I began working with the refugees. And it was because the United States was deciding to allow Kurds into the country, Kurdish refugees, for the first time ever. And they had selected Amarillo, Texas, where I was the head of the refugee program, as their first place they were going to place Kurdish refugees. And so um, suddenly this colonel walks in, and it turned out he was actually CIA. And they had assigned him to me to keep an eye on the program, to keep an eye on the Kurds that were coming in, et cetera. Was he a retired colonel? Who was he, was a re- he was a retired okay. colonel with CIA, but, you know, once in, forever in. And it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of like the mafia. You never really get out. He lived in Amarillo. Do you remember that famous photo? It, it came out in Life magazine of, uh, of a Vietnamese refugee, and he, there's a gun at his head, and he's being shot. Do you remember that horrible photo? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The man who pulled the trigger was brought to the United States as a refugee and put in this colonel's home in Amarillo. And he had no idea that that's who it was. And he was super angry when he found out that they had put this man in his home without telling him. Anyway, so this was my first experience with a colonel in the military. And two days later, I go to this conference and they introduce this speaker that I find so fascinating. They didn't introduce him as a colonel until about until the next day after I'd been listening to him for a full day. And they said, oh, this this is a recently retired colonel, blah, blah, blah. And they and so I was like, oh, how strange I'm meeting two colonels, you know, in one week, my first two two colonels. And that night I dreamt that I was telling him about the other guy, the other colonel that I had met. The next morning, I arrive at the conference early, and he arrives early, and we're both standing there alone in front of the ballroom doors. And I said, I had a dream about you last night. And the guy's a total stranger, you know, so he's like, oh, really? What did you dream? So I told him about the dream. And then he said, oh, what branch of the military was this guy in? And I said, I think he was in military intelligence. And he said, oh, I was in military intelligence. And so then then we get into this whole conversation, and I suddenly asked him about Dave Morehouse's book, Psychic Warrior. And I only remembered the colors of the book. I had seen it at the new books, you know, at the, on the new arrivals shelf at the bookstore. And he's like, I can't believe you're asking me about that book because I was a psychologist in charge of that program for 20 years. So I got into this whole conversation and he's asking me all these questions. He gets very excited and he's asking me, you know, do you remember maps easily? Do you have a photographic memory for numbers are you artistic in any way? You know, he just starts asking me these questions and I was just, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and so it kind of freaked me out. I was kind of backing away from him by this point. And so he just said, look, when you get home, go on the internet, which wasn't something I did very frequently. You know, it's kind of was kind of new at the time. And he said, go on the internet and look up controlled remote viewing. 
So when I got home and I looked it up, I found Lynn Buchanan's website. And Lynn had been a trainer in the program and, and it had just recently been declassified in 1995. So, but when I read the first page of Lynn's website, it said, what is CRV, controlled remote viewing? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and when I read his explanation, I realized I wasn't a freak. He explained it in such a wonderful way that we all have psychic ability. It's a natural ability. It's a natural sense, No, really no different than seeing or hearing or tasting or anything else. It's a sense that's God-given. And I suddenly went, oh, my God, this is the way I'm going to reconcile this whole thing. You know, this is the reconciliation right here. And my whole body lit up like like with a knowing, like this is what I'm supposed to do. This is my call. So I timidly wrote Lynn an email and I asked him, do you think I could do this? And I explained what I was doing and who I was. And he was he wrote back this very kind, wonderful response that I wish I had saved at the time. I don't think I did, but I, I wish I had. Then he wrote back this very wonderful response. I said, well, I have to go to Maryland next week. I'm, I'm going to another conference. It's going to be held in, in Maryland. And he said, well, I'm, I live in Maryland. You know how maybe you could come out on the Sunday. And back then, if you bought your ticket and stayed over the weekend, you, you saved a ton of money. And so I was stuck there over the weekend with no conference. The conference ended Friday and I didn't get to leave till Monday. And so... I contacted Lynn, I called him and he said, come on out and meet my wife and I. He sounded so sweet and grandfatherly, you know, and uh, <clears throat> we laugh about it now. We're still really good friends. Lynn's 83 now, but we laugh because when I did come out and I you know, visited him in his home and his wife was there, when I left, she said, Lynn, you have got to stop inviting these crazy people to our house. <laughs> And I said, what? <laughs> and uh, when I asked her about it, I said, why did you guys think I was crazy? She said, we thought you were like 25 at most. And you were talking about having seven children and a grandbaby. So we thought maybe you had an imaginary family. <laughs> <laughs> now, that poor girl and her imaginary family. <laughs> and so I was actually 39 when I met Lynn. But I just looked younger for my age. I'm 65 now. And Lynn was 54. And I thought he was like one foot in the grave and another on a banana peel. You know, I thought he was ancient. And so it's so funny because we just laugh about it. You know, he, he was ancient and I was a baby. But in reality, we were much closer in age than we realized. You know, Anyway, but I just was like the bad penny that wouldn't go away. I signed up for his classes and I started attending everything he did. And I said, I, I feel like I'm called to teach this. And he said, well, you know, you shouldn't teach it until two years after you've graduated from advanced class. In fact, I signed an agreement that I wouldn't teach it for t- until two years after I got out of advanced. And Lynn asked his students to do that, not because he was worried about competition, but because he was concerned about morphic resonance. Are you familiar with the idea of the hundredth monkey theory and all that? <clears throat> so, yeah, like people, people like spontaneously around the world kind of figuring this out independently of... Well, yeah, the more people that learn a thing in a certain way, the easier it becomes for others to learn it in that certain way. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's almost like we're all connected in this big net of consciousness. And and so, you know, as we share these things, and they've done a lot of research on this, and, and it, it is it, the indications from research is that it, that is true. So well, I, I, th- I think even the researcher who did it would, it's not only just that, but what he would discover is like these monkeys would develop a certain skill for like cracking oysters or something. But then, and that, I think it was in Japan, and then they would see another group of monkeys independently figure this out roughly at the same time. So yeah, I don't know if the hundredth monkey theory was ever done with actual monkeys. I, I had never heard that, but 
I mean, it's a theory, but the the, mm-hmm. the actual one of the experiments that was done was where they took a, a group of Americans, they had like a thousand Americans, and they divided them into two groups of 500, 500. And these were all people who had no knowledge of Mandarin Chinese. They divided them into two groups, and then they gave one group a well-known Chinese lullaby to memorize. So all they had to do was listen to it, you know, over and over and memorize the sounds because they didn't know what they were saying. Right. So they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. And then they gave the other the other group the same Chinese lullaby, but they took it and they mixed up the rhyme and meter of it and asked them to memorize it. But they thought, you know, I mean, it shouldn't be a problem because nobody knows what they're saying and it's all going to just be sounds, right? So why should, they should probably memorize them at the same rate, but no, group A memorized it much faster, like 20 times faster than group B because, you know, <laughs> it's just a strange, strange part of the phenomena, you know? So in all of this, as, as we want this to spread over the world with our goal of raising the consciousness of the planet, a friend of mine, a scientist friend of mine said, if you can get 1% of the population to believe a certain thing, then you can reach critical mass and, and you know, and it'll, and it'll cause more and more and more people. And that's also part of the hundred monkey theory. So mm-hmm. we, we just want to reach you know, if we could reach 1% of the population, 80 million people, and have them realize that we are so much more than our finite minds, you know, which is what controlled remote viewing is all about. You know, it's just phenomenal that then we could get, we could raise the consciousness of the whole planet, which desperately needs to be raised right now, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so controlled remote viewing is a written process that was developed during the Cold War when the United States discovered the Russians were getting our military secrets and a Russian man defected showing he had documents proving that Russia had a psychic spying military unit and a program in their military. So they went to talk to physicists, Hal Putoff and Russell Targ, who had been pioneers of the laser. And they said, we got to do something. Those guys did a ton of research. You know, they were the research arm and they research- did a lot of things. They put Psychics, like a, a detective named Pat Price, who had de- demonstrated a lot of psychic ability, they would put him in a Faraday cage. They would send somebody off to McDonald's and say, Pat, you know, focus in on where where's Bill, you know, and Pat would say, oh, you know, I mean, he would draw the golden arches or whatever. That's just an example of, you know, that I'm making up. Anyway, that's that was a lot of the kind of experimentation they did. But over the years that they did that, they came up with more concrete proof that telepathy, clairvoyance, and all these things exist, then the FDA has proving that aspirin is effective as a pain reliever. I'm not surprised by that, by the way. Yeah, I'm not (laughs) not surprised at all. (laughs) Yeah. And so they they found this guy named Ingo Swan. And Ingo had a wonderful history of psychic ability. And he had already done a lot of experimentation. My understanding is that he even did some experiments with Princeton University Paralaboratories and things mm-hmm. like that. And so they said, okay, we're going to also use, we're going to, in addition to Pat Price, we're going to have this guy, Ingo, and we're going to work with him. Ingo was also an artist. He has art hanging in the Smithsonian. And so Ingo was working with, with these guys. And then they said, hey, Ingo, he was obviously a genius. And they said, could you create something for the military? Because the military has a need for uniformity. We need something that we can teach to anybody. And so, you know, can't just be close your eyes and tell me what you see. We need some kind of a process that can be uniformly taught to any soldier. So Ingo said, yeah. And so Ingo came up with this written process 
where to help you separate imagination from true psychic perceptions. And it's a written structure that you're sitting there at a table with paper and pen and your eyes wide open, you know, and you're writing all this stuff down. As thoughts come in your head, you're writing the words in certain patterns on the paper. So Ingo was this fascinating guy and he came up with this structured set of protocols. And then they sent him a guy named Tom McNear and Tom was Ingo's first student and his favorite student. And Tom is a delightful man. Just you, He just charms you right off from day, the minute you meet him. And so he was Ingo's favorite student and Ingo worked with him. And Tom was, he considered Tom better as a, more psychic than he was. And then, you know, he continued, he, I think he ended up having teaching six or nine students while he was in the military under that umbrella and getting paid by the military. He, after that, he was paid to teach other people and he taught other people subsequently. And I think one thing that it's important to note, according to Ingo's niece and, and his relatives in his family, Ingo always made it very plain. And also according to the woman who was given access to all of Ingo's material at the University of Atlanta, who inherited the family donated all of Ingo's material to the University of Atlanta and or the University of Georgia, whatever it is. And he, one of my students had was working on her PhD and they gave her carte blanche to go through all of his stuff and organize it. And so all of these people universally say Ingo never expected CRV to stay the way he developed it. He could that was the beta version. And he expected it to progress and to evolve and to get better and to be even more amazing. And it has gotten that way. Now, there are some people who really, you know, rail against that and say, no, you know, any any variance is, is not the Ingo method and it's, you know, kind of heresy. But actually, truthfully, even all those people have made changes. They might not be aware of the changes they've made, but we can definitely see changes in the original method. And to me, that's like, I mean, would, are we still flying the planes that were flown at Kitty Hawk? You know, no, of course not. We've made vast improvements to the to aircraft. We don't take those planes into to you know into to war. We we take stealth bombers. So it's kind of the same thing. Any kind of 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 great techniques must evolve as the users use them and develop more skills and more realizations and more discoveries. So when I, you know, I worked with Lynn and I said, I want to teach this. And Lynn said, okay, well, in order to teach this, you're going to have to attend every class I teach for the next two years. Uh, you know, so I started attending all these classes. I was leaving my home. By this time, Lynn had moved to New Mexico and I was in Amarillo. So I would leave home every Friday and drive six hours to Lynn's house, stay three days for while he taught whatever class he was teaching, come back and then do it again two weeks later. So every other weekend I was doing that. And I did that for a couple of years, just attending everything he taught. And then in between working with him, and then he started turning over most of the basic classes in the United States to me. And so I started having, he, I would just open my front door and teach whoever Lynn sent me. And the full class at that time was considered four people. And so that was like, man, that's a, that's a tough thing. I had to teach four people at once because they really believed for a long time you couldn't teach more than one person at a time. You know, so the classes started filling and filling. And of course, and then after, at a, in, I think it was 2009 or so, Lynn's wife was experiencing some health issues and she kind of ran the business part of his company. 
So she said, Lori, I'm sorry, but you've got to take, you've got to go on your own. Cause I, I just can't manage this anymore. My health, you know, is not good enough. So I said, well, is Lynn ready for me to fly the coop at this point? And she said, probably not, but she said, probably not, but we're going to take a year to get him ready. <laughs> and so she worked with me. She set up my website and she put a database on my website. She helped me do all that. And then we let Lynn know and, and you know, then all of a sudden I was on my own and I was just like, okay, how do I, what do I do? You know, how do I get students? I had no idea. I had no, no experience in marketing or anything like that. And so I was standing in a bookstore owned by a friend of my husband's, and it was kind of a psychic bookstore. And uh, I was, I told her, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to open up a class for people in Amarillo. I've never taught people in Amarillo. You know, I was kind of undercover in Amarillo because I was working for a nonprofit, but you know, at this point I left the nonprofit and said, okay, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to uh, open this up for people in Amarillo at a discount, a special Amarillo discount. There were people in the bookstore and suddenly I was surrounded by all these people that had heard me say that and they knew who I was and they just flocked around me and said, I'll sign up, I'll sign up, I sign up. And so instantly I had more students than I could handle for one class. I had to create two classes just from those people right there. And they signed up like instantly. So I had my first two classes. Yay. <laughs> and then I realized though, that I, I had to make a choice after teaching for a few years, I realized, so I taught my first class in 2000. And then, you know, so I've been teaching now for 22 years, but I realized at some one point that if I really wanted to make a difference in the, on the planet, I couldn't just keep waiting for people to show up at my door. I had to learn marketing. So I really invested quite heavily. Most of our savings, my husband had great faith in me because I was like, I'm going to, if we use our savings and I fail, you know, we've lost our savings. And I don't want you to feel like you bet on the wrong horse, you know, <laughs> and uh, he was like, no, I totally believe in you. So I took a ton of classes and kind of did my own do-it-yourself MBA. And I started marketing my classes and paying for advertising and things. So the first thing I did was create a free class. And I thought to myself, if I can create a free class that's relatively brief, that someone could take and experience what it's like to remote view to do controlled remote viewing and actually experience it. That's so much more convincing than me doing a session on camera for you, for example. You know, that's like, so magicians do amazing things in front of our eyes all the time. And, you know, we know that right. they're magicians, right? right? So, I, but when you do something yourself, you go, okay, well, I know I'm not cheating. I know I I didn't, I didn't cheat. I, this is a real thing. I can't believe I just did that. So I thought, well, if I'm going to create a free class and I'm going to give it away, and, and we'll see how many people sign up for it. So I advertised that I was going to be giving away a free class and thought maybe 200 people might sign up. I would be really happy if 200 people signed up for it. We had 4,300 people sign up for it. And I was like freaked out. I was scared because I was just like, oh my God, I didn't expect that many people to sign up. And they say that if you have, if you offer something free, that's going to appear on a certain date that you, if you get 20% of the people who signed up to actually attend it, you're doing really good. 80% of those 4,300 people attended it. And so then I knew, oh my gosh, you know, this is, this is going to snowball. And it really has, it has, it has really snowballed. And uh, now I have, I have three full-time employees and uh, five part-time employees. We have five coaches who do one-on-one -on -one coaching in our three-year certification program. We now have a three-year professional certification program for people who want to really 
who know this is what I want to do with, you know, for a living, this is what I want to do for my life. That's something that no one's ever offered before, you know, it's a path to professional, to professionalism with, with controlled remote viewing to be so able here's, to here's, and things. Here's, here's a controversial topic. And I, I, I could probably figure out the answer, but I'm curious what, what you would have to say. I think the next step in this journey, but is, and I think it's probably a fairly large barrier, but why hasn't there been like, like somebody who's a little bit younger and says, comes to you. And is that like a, you know, says, I want to do a PhD on Mm -hmm. this, on this topic. And I want to do it at Harvard or Stanford. Yeah, I I personally believe that's the next step, but breaking into that segment, I, I, you know, there's there's so many pressures. We again, this uh, this is all my theory, so take take them with a grain of salt. But number one, there's an incentive for intelligence organizations, agencies, and and the community to keep this suppressed, right? Because why would you want uh, suburban housewives sitting in on a, a meeting in Langley, Virginia, right? And again, I'm not saying they would. It's just that's that's an intelligence. The intelligence community's job is to is to learn secrets and keep secrets. And then the other thing is you have you know academia is very it's all based on prestige and reputation. And given decades of disinformation and misinformation by said intelligence community people reflexively sneer at this stuff without having an open mind. Like sometimes somebody will tell you something crazy and you investigate it and it turns out to be crazy. But sometimes there's, there's a lot of gold where people aren't looking. I think the reason that happens though is because of fear. People, we fear that which we don't understand. And you know, I have a dear friend that we were friends all through high school and he became an eminent psychiatrist. Really, I mean, he was the head of psychiatry for a major state in the country and became really eminent. And I had a funny experience that your your listeners might enjoy hearing about. So my husband and I had always talked about taking a trip up the East Coast in fall to see the colors. We lived in Texas and Amarillo is pretty flat and dry. And so we're like, why don't we why don't we take our motor home and go up the East Coast? And we always talked about it. Like, wouldn't that be nice? And we'll go visit my friend, Greg, who, who lived in at that time in Massachusetts. You know, and we could go visit Greg. And, and so we always talked about it. But then one year, it was January, I was walking out the door and I said, oh, this is the year that we're going to go up the East Coast. And it wasn't like I was suggesting it. It was like, it was a sudden knowing, oh, this is the year that this is going to happen. And I said, we're going to go up the East Coast in October. And my, my husband said, well, Sweetie, we don't we don't have the money for that. How are we going to pay for that? And I said, Oh, we're going to get a class on the East Coast. It's going to pay for everything. And he just kind of looked at me and said, oh, Okay. So five minutes later, I reached the office that I had and I opened the door and the phone's ringing. And I pick it up and this lady says, Hi, my name is so and so. And I have a center in blah, 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 Massachusetts. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to come up in October and teach a series of classes here. And I said, I would love to do that. So we agreed that we would meet later and finalize all the details. I hang up the phone, call my husband. I've literally been away from the house now for 10 minutes. And I said, okay, we've got the class in Massachusetts. The location of it is 20 minutes from Greg's house. (laughs) It's it's for October. And he just said, you're scary. (laughs) 
<laughs> that was his response. You're scary. But these kinds of things would, would happen pretty frequently. And so, in fact, with our first motorhome, I wanted a motorhome really bad. And one day I said, I just feel like we're supposed to go to the dealership. So we go to the dealership and the perfect motorhome is there. And it's a pretty decent price, but it was like, I don't know, a little less than $30,000, I think. And I said, that's our motorhome. We're supposed to have that. And my husband's like, but sweetie, we don't, we don't have any money. And I said, I know, but I, for, I just know this is our motorhome. We're supposed to have it. And so he goes off to work and I call him and I'm like, could we, could we trade in the car? He's like, no, sweetie, <laughs> we can't use a motorhome for our car. I'm like, okay. And I just kept struggling with it because I felt like, I know this is our motorhome. We're supposed to have this home. And so then I'm sitting there and my mother calls and she says, do you remember when daddy died and I gave you this envelope to put in your safety deposit box? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, those were bonds that I wanted you just to hold for me. And she said, but now I was thinking about it. I think you should just spend that money. Just, I think you should cash in those bonds and you should spend it. And I said, well, wh- how much is it? She said, I don't even remember. So, so I go down and I have like $30,000. So I go to the dealership and I was like, if I pay you in cash, will you sell me this motorhome? And, and what kind of a discount will you give me? And the guy goes, well, I'll let you have it for $24,000. So I just, just counted out the cash for him. And my husband gets home and the motorhome's in the driveway paid for, you know, and he's just like, how did that happen? <laughs> so, Sometimes so, uh, the universe provides, right? It, yeah, the universe does really provide. And and I've learned that manifestation is is truly, it's kind of an art of faith. You know, it's a it's an art, but it's also faith. Just mm-hmm. having this faith that you when you just know something, you just believe it and you stand on it, you know. Well, uh, what most people don't realize is so is money. Exactly. Money is just energy. It's based in, entirely on faith. It is. It's 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 faith and it's just energy. And I, I really had to shift my whole way of looking at money because I was I had a very missionary mindset. But we had to live by faith many times. We didn't know where our next meal was coming from sometimes or or who how the rent was going to get paid because we didn't have a salary. We, you know, everything was based on donations and that sort of thing. And so I did really acquire a pretty good manifestation mindset as a missionary. A lot of the things I learned as a missionary have served me well you know, in this current life now. But I found that you you really can uh, manifest things by truly just knowing that you have the ability to kind of control the universe to some degree. You know, yeah, it's just, it, it's, a, it's a pretty amazing thing. You were saying that the next step is like for people to get a PhD in this in Harvard. But I actually think the next step is having it taught to children. Children are far more open, and and the smaller you are, the younger you are, the more subconscious you are. You know, we we start out with our subconscious mind front and center and controlling everything. Then the subconscious slips below the lemon, you know, subliminal. It slips below that that invisible membrane that we call the lemon, and everything beneath the lemon is we're unaware of, and everything above it we're aware of. So we think the conscious mind is, you know, our egos are controlling everything, but in reality, the ego. And, and the conscious mind that we're aware of is like 0.001%. Well, here's and, the other thing too. Like the common perception is that the two are binary. Are they really binary or is it a continuum? That's that's a wonderful question. I, I personally don't think that they are binary. I think that the subconscious mind is probably the big mystery. You know, I think the mm-hmm. conscious mind is pretty well understood, but I think the subconscious mind could be like you said, more than one thing, you know, because if you just say subconscious and conscious, we've got two bin- two things, binary. But if the, the conscious mind is possibly one thing, but then we've got the subconscious, which may be a plethora 
of things, <laughs> right? So I, I personally, you know, and I have students who think that rather than the subconscious, they were like, no, I think it's my, my angelic guides, or I think it's the Akashic records, or I think it's a great big cosmic database on the sky or whatever, right? You know, whatever we think it is, but we do know, or it's higher self maybe, or God or angels or Jesus, whatever. But we, we do know that there is a part of us that is much wiser than, than the, the daily conscious day-to-day person, you know, and much faster, much more intelligent. And so when I, when I teach, what I explain to people is just for the sake of this class, just for the sake of learning this, except for a moment that your subconscious mind, there's a part of you that is plugged in to this great big cosmic database in the sky that has everything. It contains all the information, all the knowledge, everything that ever has been or ever will be, you know, and if you can accept that, then you're, you're good to go to start learning and training with CRV with this great written methodology. But I think we need to start in school. You know, a funny story that I just thought of the other day that I don't think I've ever talked about on any of the interviews I've done. When I, I was teaching fifth grade in Chile, Santiago, Chile, or Concepcion, or wherever it was, and it was somewhere in Chile, I was teaching fifth grade. And we had these pictures all up on the wall that were famous artwork from the Bible, you know, scenes from the Bible. And they were it was kind of like it was a little thing that we had pasted up on the top of the wall. And so I said, hey, kids, let's do an experiment. And because when I was 12, I was really into, you know, extra ESP and all that. So now I'm now I'm a missionary living in Chile. And I say, kids, let's do an experiment. Who wants to volunteer to go out of the room? And you're going to be the recipient. So this kid raises his hand and I send him out of the room. And then I say, okay, kids, now all let's all choose one of these pictures. So they point to a picture. I pull it down. I don't think I pulled it down. I just said, okay, now what I want you guys to do for a few minutes, I want you to focus on the picture, kind of memorize that picture. And then when we have the recipient come back in, uh, we're going to ask the recipient to see if he can sketch the picture that everybody has in their minds. And I want you to keep that picture in your minds. So they did it and the kid totally sketched the right picture. And there were like 20 of them, you know, to choose from. And so I, I was already experimenting with this kind of thing from the, you know, even when I was 12 and, and then when I was a teacher in Chile and stuff, I was doing remote viewing, but I didn't know it. You know, I didn't know that's what it was. It's almost as if you accessed a precognitive skill. That yeah, like I was actually precognitive. Yeah, we talked yeah. about how maybe it would be fun to talk about time loops, you know. The main thing I'm thinking about as far as education goes, I've always felt like it would be great to offer it, for example, in middle school. I think middle school kids... 11, 12 years old, that's when you really reach a peak of psychic ability. I mean, I think little tiny kids can also be very psychic, but but boy, around 11 or 12, you have a great mixture of conscious and subconscious working together, and you can really be tuning in. And that's why there's all this poltergeist activity and things like that too, you know, and all the hormones are coming up. And so I was thinking, wow, that would be so great. And you could take it like you can elect to take piano lessons or violin lessons or go out for sports, you know, okay, I want to take controlled remote viewing and hone that sense. And some kids, you know, become concert pianists, some people become football stars, and some people become world-class remote viewers. Not everyone, right? Because it's not for everyone. Football's not for everyone. Music isn't for everyone. And, and controlled remote viewing is not for everyone. But the the kids that do have that ability who, like me, I mean, I knew from a very early age, this was what I was meant to do. And those are the kids that are going to really benefit from these classes and hone those abilities. 
Okay. So last question, and then and then I think we can wrap up. When you're offering these classes, what what sorts of professionals sign up for them and what applications do they use them for in everyday life? You know, there there was a man in Australia who had created a very a Sony-like company. And Sony saw it and said, you know, let's buy this company and make this guy the CEO. And so they did. And the guy was the CEO of Sony in, for that hemisphere. And I think it was like, I don't know, 2000, 2008. In 2008, that guy came, flew to Amarillo, Texas from Australia. He was the CEO of Sony. And he took my class. I've had, I have a ton. Well, you of- know, Sony had a paranormal program. We actually, I actually interviewed a, a former VP at Sony who talked about it, who went through. I And I saw that you had that episode and I wanted to watch it and I, I got tripped off and I didn't watch it, but I'm going to watch it because I'm super yeah. interested in seeing that one. But yeah, so he was the CEO of Sony and he didn't take it as the CEO of Sony. He took it because he had had a near-death experience that totally shifted his belief system and he wanted to understand it more and so he came and and took the class for me it was really a a great experience and we've stayed friends we're still friends now he's no longer he left sony a few years ago but and now has a different company that he had he started up and is running but he's an amazing guy and we're still very good friends but you know i have i have a lot of medical doctors a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists a lot of computer programmers I have a lot of authors and novelists. I have a lot of real estate people. I have uh, several people who, a lot of my students are people who were very successful entrepreneurs and have made, you know, have made it as, you know, that was their goal and to make it as an entrepreneur. And then they did, they have successful companies. And now they're like, okay, now I have time to really delve in to do stuff that, you know, just for me just to explore what what I can do, what my potential is. And so, you know, I love that. Now, you know, one of the things you learn when you start going to marketing classes is you have to know your audience. And so I did a number of surveys and and things to find out who my audience was. And I found out that slightly more women than men Mm -hmm. and generally in the age of 40 to 60 years old and about 70% either entrepreneurs or in very high level positions in companies highly educated for the most part then probably 70% extremely highly educated so that's my those are my those are my students also i noticed that my students are very heart centered people people who really want to make a difference and they like getting into this and the the company culture that we have is that love is the most powerful force in the universe it is the one constant between all universes and all dimensions Love is is it. Love is God, as, as Jesus said. So we make sure that love is our primary focus in our company. It's not money, it's love. And of course, you need, you know, we got to keep the lights on. So, you know, we do have things that we charge for. But if you go to the website, we have more free stuff on there than any other any other company you can imagine. There's a ton of free stuff, including a four-part free class. And that website will be down in the description. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you the URL that you can put there. And so we have a four-part free masterclass we call the Introduction to Practical Remote Viewing. And that is the same, That's a, it's the same controlled remote viewing. We just called it Practical Remote Viewing because people in America a lot of times feel goosey about the word control. They're afraid that somebody's going to try to control me. And also, but it's about controlling yourself and your own abilities. And I had a lady who asked me, why would I want to control my, my intuition? And I said, well, why would you want to try 
car. You know, why drive your car? Why not let your car just go where it wants to? I mean, you know, you, you need to direct that. If you could direct and get information when you needed it, you know, instead of just being a spontaneous thing that happens when it feels like happening, if you could get information that you needed when you needed it on demand, how would that change your career? How would that change your relationships? How would that change your finances? You know, I mean, how would that change your life? You know, it's just, it's like a no brainer. Of course, I want to hone that ability and and be able to use it to help others. All right. Well, Lori, it was a pleasure meeting you and having you on this first episode. And I look forward to seeing you on future episodes very soon. Okay. That sounds great. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the show. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.